A captured Ukrainian soldier whose brutal killing was videotaped by Russian forces is identified and honored. This person would be known by all Ukrainians for his defense of Ukraine and for his love to Ukraine. Plus, Ukraine's success is not just critical to its own democracy, but to nations around the world. This battle in Ukraine is really the front lines of democracy. And later in the program, Ukrainian women previously imprisoned on Ukraine's territory under Russia's occupation speak out. Today is Monday, March 13th. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. The battle for eastern Ukraine's Bakhmut is continuing to see fierce fighting, according to both sides, as the months-long struggle for control of the area rages on. Russia has targeted Bakhmut as a key part of its wider goal to seize the Donbass region, while Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has vowed to defend Bakhmut. I spoke earlier with Anna Chernikova, reporting for VOA from Kyiv. Anna, before we get to Bakhmut... I understand that President Zelensky honored the Ukrainian soldier who was executed recently by Russian soldiers, and that whole execution was videotaped. What can you tell us about what he said to honor this hero? Yesterday in the evening, the security service of Ukraine confirmed the identity. So now we know that the name of the soldier who was executed is Alexander Matsyevsky. He was captured by Russian soldiers in a battle next to Bakhmut. President Zelensky yesterday in his evening speech he had quite a long speech yesterday and he mentioned that this person would be remembered and would be known by all Ukrainians that he is honoring him with the highest award that Ukraine has, the award of the hero of Ukraine for his defense of Ukraine and for his love to Ukraine. So now the family will have a chance to say uh, the farewell to their family member because as we know, security service of Ukraine had access to the body and this is how they uh, managed to confirm their identities. I understand that the fierce fighting in Bakhmut is continuing. Tell us what you're hearing. Yes, uh, Bakhmut is getting even hotter, at least according to the announcements by the general staff of Ukraine and by uh, the uh, by General Sirsky, who is responsible for that area from the Ukrainian uh, armed forces. He confirmed that Russian forces are trying to get to the central part of the city. And uh, these tries are sometimes successful, sometimes not. But for the moment, the central part of the city remains under Ukrainian control. At least this was the latest update from the official Ukrainian military sources. We are hearing that very heavy fightings continue every day and a lot of, uh, a lot of lo- losses from both sides, particularly from Russian sides. This was reported for, from the Ukrainian authorities as well. And also we're hearing that there are a lot of losses from the Wagner Group representatives. And also we're hearing uh, from international experts and some Ukrainian experts discussions of is it how long would this take and is it that important for Ukraine to keep this territory? In general, what we're hearing from the Ukrainian um, military officials is that this battle for Bakhmut, first of all, allows Ukrainians to prepare for the upcoming counteroffensive and saves time. Uh, and this time is crucial for Ukrainian forces. And secondly, Ukrainians, well, claim that 
this territory as any territory of Ukraine is important for Ukrainians and for Ukrainians uh, for Ukrainian defense. So we cannot for the moment say how long really this would continue and uh, if Russian forces would finally get any success. And Anna, finally, you know, with all the constant shelling in many parts of the country and a possible the possibility of a Russian advance in the Donetsk region, what are you hearing from Ukrainian citizens, how they're holding up and in all of this? To be honest, I should say that it's definitely not an easy time for Ukrainians, despite the fact that a lot of most of people are getting used to the fact that the whole scale war is ongoing and that shelling happening all the time and that risks are that high. I think that what's important to mention that Ukrainians are really looking forward to this coming counteroffensive which was announced and um, no one knows exactly the dates or uh, the exact time when it's going to start but but definitely this is something what is discussed uh, very actively within the society. So uh, Ukrainians are hoping for the international support and for, for the weapons to arrive uh, soon and for Ukrainian soldiers to finish their preparations, their trainings which they have with foreign tanks currently, so then they can start the counteroffensive. And I think that this, you know, counteroffensive topic is kind of one of the main within the society right now. Anna Chernikova reporting for VOA from Kyiv. The U.S. has begun an aggressive new push to inflict pain on Russia's economy in an attempt to thwart its invasion of Ukraine, focusing specifically on Russia's oligarchs. Associated Press correspondent Karen Chamas reports. A special task force known as KleptoCapture is prioritizing efforts to identify those who help Russians evade sanctions and violate export controls. As well as legally liquidating the property of Russian oligarchs, the US government will expand financial penalties on those who facilitate the evasion of sanctions. By targeting those who help oligarchs evade sanctions, the US government hoped to see more effective results. A recent Dartmouth University study showed that targeting a few key wealth managers would cause far greater damage to Russia than sanctioning oligarchs individually. I'm Karen Chamas. Well, the United States and many other allied nations have imposed sanctions on Russia since before Moscow began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. VOA's Steve Miller spoke with Doug Redeker, a non-resident senior fellow in the Global Economy and Development Program at Brookings, about the challenges of enforcing sanctions and asks what exactly they're designed to do. They can be a deterrent. They can be used as negotiating leverage. Or they can be used primarily for punitive purposes, which is to say, you did something bad, we're going to do something bad in response to make you realize that this is not going to go unpunished. It's clear that to date, sanctions have not been used as negotiating leverage because there's no negotiations that are ongoing. It's also clear, as I just went through, that they really have not served much of a deterrent purpose. So it really means that the primary purpose, goal, and effect of sanctions has been and continues to be punitive. So going forward, what do you see as some of the challenges in implementing and having these sanctions having their desired effect? After all, China, which is the world's second largest economy, continues to closen its ties with Russia, and Moscow is continuing to reach out to other countries around the world. So one of the major sanctions that we impose was through the export controls that we put on the export or the import into Russia 
of a lot of um, semiconductors and other high-tech chip-based products and the chips themselves. That means that Russia, on the military side, has been unable to actually create or manufacture high-tech weapons, so smart weapons. That's why you see a lot of the armaments that they're using are dumb. They are blowing up apartment buildings in part because Putin is intending to sow you know, fear, but also because they don't have the smart weapon technology that allows them to be more precise in how they're, they're uh, targeting things. But on trade more generally, you're completely correct that it's not just Russia and China, but Russia and India, Russia and much of the rest of the world, the so-called global south, has actually picked up. Part of that is because sanctions are easy to impose and sometimes hard to enforce. So necessity being the mother of invention, what we've done by shutting off Europe and U.S. and other G7 trade and finance channels is create an enormous necessity, which other countries and individual entities have been willing to try and fill to fill those gaps where there's a need, there's a way. And so to some degree, one of the uh, uh, uncomfortable realities is some of the sanctions that we and our G7 allies have imposed have resulted in the creation of these alternative channels that are beyond our transparency. We can't see them. And that's a bad thing going forward. So going forward, what are the key challenges to address these transparency issues so that sanctions can possibly ultimately have their desired effect? Well, the U.S. has played and continues to play a unique role in the global financial system because the U.S. dollar is still the reserve currency of choice and the unit of transaction of choice in global trade and transactions. But that is not always going to be the case. So there is a risk that if we, the U.S. in particular, but if we and our G7 allies don't act in lockstep, then other alternatives will be found countries, this is political science 101, and it may not be pleasant, but it's true. Countries don't have friends, they have interests. If the U.S. doesn't explicitly sanction or threaten secondary sanctions on your financial institutions, then those countries are going to find a way to actually buy at discounted prices. That's what we've seen. The U.S. continues to maintain that dominance if we decide to go there meaning if we decide to say to a big bank that if you continue to break sanctions, we are going to sanction you to the point where you are not going to be able to transact in U.S. dollars, that is a huge move and one that the U.S. government has been very reluctant to go down that route, and we have been reluctant to do so for good reason. So, number one, sanctions work if you coordinate them with the other major currency, central banks, and countries of the world, let's call it the G7 plus Switzerland. Um, but that's hard to get because those countries aren't always aligned with the U.S. And even then, it is a real decision that senior political figures have to make as to whether you really want to go down the route of saying we've threatened you with secondary sanctions, now we're going to pull the trigger, because that escalates the tensions at um, uh, a very high level of geopolitics that sometimes isn't worth the cost. So sanctions are great as a threat, but if you're trying to enforce them, number one, it's hard. 
because you don't know where the transactions are all taking place. And number two, if you really go down the route of sanctioning those that are breaking the sanctions that you first imposed, you can end up in a very serious escalation at a geopolitical level with countries where those relationships are very complicated, in particular China. Doug Redeker, senior fellow in the Global Economy and Development Program at Brookings, speaking with VOA's Steve Miller. With authoritarianism on the rise globally, experts say Ukraine's ultimate success in this war for its sovereignty is not just critical to its own democracy, but also for the democracy of nations around the world. I talked about it with Jonathan Katz, senior fellow and director of democracy initiatives with the German Marshall Fund. The current conflict hits an authoritarian-led government, an autocrat, Vladimir Putin and his government, and Ukraine. Uh, a democracy seeking to integrate Euro-Atlantic institutions, wants to be a member of the EU, uh, NATO, uh, has taken has taken many steps towards uh, both achieving some, those objectives, but also um, shedding its its past uh, and its connection to Soviet period, where obviously there was no democracy. There was little in the way of human rights uh, in Ukraine. And so Ukrainians, many who I've had an opportunity to work with over the last two decades, have strived to change their country and to move it closer to the democratic world. And it's been a struggle for Ukrainians to do that, to make reforms in the light of the challenges they have internally, including issues like corruption or at the time, at times, weak institutions not really prepared or capable of transitioning the country in the way that Ukrainians, when you look at polling numbers, overwhelmingly want their country to be democratic, to be free of corruption, to be part of Europe, but mainly part of the democratic world. And I, I think those shared values, when you talk to Ukrainians today, really are juxtaposed with what you see uh, from Vladimir Putin. And it doesn't mean that you don't have Russians who don't want the same thing you do. But right now, Russia is is ruled by Mr. Mr. Putin and uh, those surrounding him that sort of feed off of his rule right now. It's uh, the most front and center example of the global challenge of democracies and autocracies. And for the last decade, we saw a tremendous democratic backsliding globally. Uh, including in Europe, in countries like Hungary, Turkey, these are NATO and EU member states. And so you see these these challenges. So this battle in Ukraine is really the front lines of democracy. And I think many view the success there and what comes out of this, not only just the, the current conflict, obviously the immediate challenges, but the long-term rebuilding, reconstruction, further democratization in Ukraine and its integration in the EU as a key battleground in this fight. On that larger scale, how important is it to Ukraine and, and the world that Ukraine succeeds in winning this war? There's obviously, there's there's a couple of different things happening. One, there's, there's a military conflict. We don't see any end right now to the current conflict. Absolutely, that's critical, the security side, because Ukraine needs security to be able to, and Ukrainians need security uh, to be able to rebuild their country, but also to do the things that they want to do. But also, they're an important, a critical contributor to a number of global, global supply chains, food 
uh, food security in particular is of concern. And, and uh, we saw what happened as Mr. Putin blockaded uh, Ukrainian ports. You saw the, the price of food rise, global food insecurity increase. This means increased instability globally as well. So there's issues not just related to democracy and, and sort of Ukraine's place in the international democratic world, but also about sort of global stability as well, how important it is. And so uh, having Ukraine win this war, they've already done uh, so much to to retake territory that was illegally seized by Russia, and that still continues today. But the outcome of this conflict is still not set. And so what are the terms of those next steps? What does security look like? How quickly can uh, Ukraine integrate into the EU to have the type of economic security they need? But make no mistake, I mean, this has implications not only for Ukraine and Europe, but also is seen by others globally, including China. Uh, And of course, everyone has uh, real concerns, uh, including in Washington. Washington and Europe, particularly in the in the Pacific, about how this conflict in Ukraine could impact thinking in China about Taiwan and uh, the use of military force to do something similar to what we see uh, Russia doing. And it's very disturbing, obviously, to hear reports of the secretaries, Secretary of State and U.S. government officials saying, hey, we, we've got some credible information about the potential for the types of support that China might provide to Russia. We already know that there is some leaking of technology and things that are flowing from China to Russia. But the situation in Ukraine, the resolve of the West to support and maintain support for Ukraine as well, it's a test of our own democracies, of our willingness to stand up for the values that we share uh, with Ukrainians right now. So there's a number of interconnectors, things that could be impacted if this war goes in the wrong direction. And I I think that that's why you you see the attention being given to this since day one, even before the war, uh, by the Biden administration with the recognition of, of the of the global spillover and impacts this type of conflict could have. Again, an unprovoked, unjust war uh, driven by Vladimir Putin. And not the first time that we have seen him use force. Spaces in Africa, Libya, Georgia, in the region. So I, I think we're, we've come to a point where Russian aggression, whether it's sort of military or hybrid aggression through the use of energy or poisoning or interference in elections, is having a dramatic impact. Jonathan Katz, Senior Fellow and Director, Democracy Initiatives with the German Marshall Fund. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. As Russian tanks rolled into eastern Ukraine a year ago, millions of Ukrainians fled to Poland. Many came by foot through the Medica border crossing, where aid agencies mounted a huge emergency response. Twelve months on, VOA's Henry Ridgewell returned to Medica to see what has changed and how authorities are preparing for a possible new wave of refugees. He and his mother, Julia, fled Kiev a year ago. They stayed in Dnipro, but were forced to flee again as the city came under attack and have just arrived at the Polish border town of Medica. Now they have a new plan. Julia's new partner is a truck driver. They will live with him in the truck as he drives around Europe. It's not so bad because it's very warm and we have light, electricity, and it's very... Um, interesting for my son. I have three years uh, old son and it's not so bad. It's really safety for us. Polina Osadcha helps look after Daniel. 
Osadcha is a refugee who now works for the United Nations at this reception centre at the Medica border crossing. She says Ukrainians are adapting to the war. They already, even when the, uh, there was these problems with blackouts, for the first time, all, were, all the people were stressed, shocked what to do, but now they have generators, they have power banks. Britain's Mo Hornick and Mikey Stewart Richardson are from the MAD Foundation charity, which takes aid into Ukraine and refugees back to Britain. But today they have a feline passenger. This little guy's owner has been living in the UK for a little while and um, was really desperate to be reunited with his mum. Um, so we um, have helped um, organise um, some transport. It's more important than, than ever almost um, that people are, like, remain aware of the situation in yeah. Ukraine. I think um, a lot of people may feel a little bit fatigued um, by the news that they see, um, but the situation is still very, very desperate. At the Medica crossing, much has changed in a year. At the start of Russia's invasion, up to 30,000 refugees poured across this frontier every day. Now only a few hundred cross the border daily. Soup kitchens have been replaced with cell phone stools. Buses quickly take the Ukrainians away from the border. The mayor of Przemyshil city, a few kilometres from the frontier, recalls the chaos of a year ago. 40% of all refugees uh, from Ukraine uh, crossing uh, city of Przemysl. So it's huge amount of people crossing such a small city. A lot of them was very hungry, uh, thirsty, you know, some of them need some medical assistance, medical help. A former supermarket in Przemysl has been turned into a humanitarian hub. The warehouse stores huge volumes of food and drink, medical supplies, beds and blankets. There are fears that a renewed Russian offensive will create a new wave of refugees. We have all that uh, logistics system ready to, to expand. We, we have still a lot of beds stored in, in schools, things like that. So we're ready, yeah, we're ready for that situation again. But hopefully that situation will not, not happen again. Russia's invasion brought millions of refugees to Poland and large-scale land warfare to NATO's doorstep. With little sign of an end to the conflict, all sides are preparing for a long war. Henry Ridgewell for VOA News on the Poland-Ukraine border. Ukrainian women, volunteer Lyudmila Husinova and senior combat medic Anna Olsen were imprisoned on Ukraine's territory under Russia's occupation and in Russia. They came to the United States to tell their stories and issue a call to action. Tatiana Vorozhka has the story. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, about 2,000 Ukrainians, both soldiers and civilians, have been captured and released as part of prison exchanges. Two Ukrainian women, a volunteer and a combat medic, came to the U.S. to tell their story after they were released following a prison exchange with Russia. I wasn't allowed to sit or lie down from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. I had to pace or stand. Once I got so tired, I climbed into bed a few minutes before 10. They threw me down and started beating me. Lyudmila Husseinova was detained in the Donetsk region in 2019, after the city residents complained about her pro-Ukrainian stance. The next three years she spent at a Donetsk detention center with criminals.
I slept next to women I didn't know. One had tuberculosis. In October 2022, Hosseinova was released during a women prison exchange. In April 2022, combat medic Anna Olson was in Mariupol and had almost 1,000 wounded in her care. When her brigade surrendered, she spent months in prisons in Olenivka, on the occupied territory in Ukraine, and in Russia, in Taganrog, Kurtz, and Belgorod region. Russia has repeatedly refused to directly address any incidents of mistreatment of prisoners, alleged war crimes or torture. Moscow has labeled them fake news or even, in some cases, staged attempts by the Ukrainians to discredit Russia. Tetyana Voroshko for VOA News, Washington. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage on Ukraine and news from around the world, 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of the entire Flashpoint Ukraine team, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. This is the voice of America. Washington, Papa, Bozette, D.C.